Well, hi everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in a, an old money part of London's ruling class geography, namely St John's Wood, <laughs> uh, with my old friend who doesn't fit that description, James Hay. The Danubius Hotel, too. Right? Yeah, what is that? I don't know. They, there is, uh, they advertise, they represent their hotel chain in the hotel as um, located in Budapest and London. That's oh, so their... Danubius is like the river, is it? Yeah, yeah. Danubius, okay. yeah. Fine. I must say it looked a lot nicer on the website than it does. <laughs> no, no. I don't know what the rooms are like. But it looked, when I looked it up on the website, I thought, wow, this is really yeah. cool. Yeah. And then I got here, I thought, this is not really cool. <laughs> but anyway, so you're here for a number of purposes. You're in London partly for a conference, but then I know you're going on to Italy, which is sort of your second home. That's right. right? Uh, I've taught in at the University of Bologna several times and um, developed a deep love, affection for that city and still have friends there. And um, at this point in my life, I'm enjoying um, their conception of public welfare, which is showing free movies every night during the summer under the stars in the central piazza, 3,000 seat set up by the municipality um, and people sitting perfectly quiet uh, watching uh, a pristine print of some film and it's from all over the world and gelato on my fingers as I'm watching so uh, you can't you can't beat that in the history of the world today you know given public welfare what it is and um, my relatively deprived access to gelato in Champaign, Illinois. So this is the working stiff's bunga bunga. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know whether uh, uh, Berlusconi is uh, still playing his role in the Night of the Living Dead or not, but because there was, a, if, you have, if the listeners to this interview have not checked it out, I can't remember the uh, artist's name, but you can... You can Google uh, a website to, for an artist that I think about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, uh, created a sculpture, a kind of artistic installation that presented a simulation of Berlusconi in a plastic uh, coffin uh, in which you could you could see in as if he were a sort of leader on public display exhibition and he has this sort of very satisfied smile on his face he has Mickey Mouse slippers on and his trousers are slightly undone and he has his hand down the front of his pants you know uh, which supposedly has something to do with the smile on his face too. And, and so it's this image of whether or not he's 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 still alive or not, right? That right. was the the artist uh, rendition. And when I interviewed Umberto Eco um, this last year, I was asking him uh, about that, and and he was and readers, listeners of this interview might want to uh, to look at that interview uh, in the first issue that I've edited uh, of the volume that I'm editing of um, 
communication and critical cultural studies, where we talk a little bit about that uh, that artistic representation of uh, Silvio Berlusconi and whether or not he's in fact sort of part of the 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 night of the living dead in Italian political history. Isn't he really the day, night, and afterlife of the iguana? <laughs> as much as anything. And do you, do you know Echo from the past? Your past in I don't. Italy? I don't. Uh, I met. Um, I had a Fulbright in 1985 and 86. I remember that I had to leave Italy because my wife, uh, rightly, uh, in those years, could not stand being in a country one more day where the um, the fog from Chernobyl was blowing over the northern part of, uh, of Italy. But I had a Fulbright at the University of Bologna then, and I met him um, coincidentally at a couple of parties um, in 1985 and 1986. And the interview was arranged by another former colleague of mine who's a professor at the University of Bologna, uh, Patrizia Violi, and, um, and it's a relatively short interview, but um, it's, um, it, it, the, the idea, of, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but um, the idea for the first uh, issue of this journal that I'm editing was to uh, interview um, three voices from whose work goes back to the 1960s and 70s even that I think have shaped the kinds of questions that um, people who work about or under the banner of something called critical studies or cultural studies of media and communication um, are still that their work is still driven by. So my idea was to interview uh, Umberto Eco and Stuart Hall and Armand Madelart, um, sort of tradition of semiotics, of cultural studies, of political Marxist political economy, uh, and uh, of a particular generation. Uh, they're all roughly 80, 81 years old. Um, but after I interviewed them, I began to realize that I hadn't quite gotten um, a kind of institutional history of those perspectives. And so I decided to interview a generation slightly younger than them in their 70s, late 60s. Um, and again, the listeners to the interview might be interested in uh, finding the uh, first issue, that would be volume 10, issue number one or, of uh, communication and critical cultural studies. I'm not trying to sort of promote that, but it's um, in some ways part of your question about mm. uh, Echo and Italy. And if you want to talk about Italy, we can talk a little bit more no, about, I'd love to about, talk that a bit about that. Too. Because I should say that. Uh, uh, I first encountered your work because of your first book, which, as you know, I love. Uh, and Popular uh, film culture in fascist Italy. Oh, hello. Uh, so I, I think we'd like something, maybe a cup of tea. have some green tea? Yeah, we have. And for me, some black tea. If you could bring some uh, green tea hot, but with a glass with some ice in it. Yeah. Right. 
and just ordinary black tea, I'm not as needy or pushy as he No, is. no, no. Well, it's uh, my um, sort of hybrid taste of both. Um, both and. Uh, Either uh, or. Well, and it, but the, the iced tea part of it comes from yeah. having been reared in the southern part of the United States, in right. Texas, right, where um, iced tea is a kind of genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyway, so we were talking about... 1987, this book? No, is that right? 87, it was... Uh, so, so briefly, uh, when I was 19 years old, I dropped out of school and followed a girlfriend of mine who was about five years older than me and been uh, a model in Rome and followed her to Italy uh, for no other reason. Did you speak Italian I, at the time or only the bits that were necessary? I, only the bits that were necessary, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Um, I had, strangely, I had taken a year and a half of undergraduate Italian before I dropped out of school huh. because in those years, my father used to laugh at this story because in those years, of course, you didn't register for courses online. Uh, you, you went to a gymnasium where you stood in a line to register. And after sweltering in the University of Texas uh, gymnasium for about 30 minutes in order to get into Spanish, I noticed that the line for Italian was like three or four people. And so, and so, and so I just moved over into that, into that line. And, you know, my father said, well, it was fated, you know, that, uh, and I said, no, it was certain historical conditions that brought me to studying Italian. But I happened to meet this uh, woman who I was smitten by and followed her to, uh, to Rome. And uh, I'll just add this because people enjoy this part of the story, which is that her older sister was part of a wave of uh, U.S. actors and actresses in their 20s and 30s who were unable to find work in Hollywood and who went to places like Italy in the 1960s uh, to find work at places like Cina Città. Mm. And her sister's stage name in Italy was Lucretia Love. She starred in various softcore uh, kinds of movies. You can look up her um, filmography, let's call it, uh, on uh, on Google now. There's some great images of the first, sort of that period of German, French, Italian, softcore film that was made in the mid-1960s. And then she was in Italian sex farces where she would ride naked on a white horse. Uh, medieval films uh, in the late 1960s, even some spaghetti westerns. Anyway, uh, I lived with uh, my friend Helen and her sister Lucretia Love uh, in the early 1970s and uh, met some friends of uh, hers that had um, um, bought about 400 acres of beautiful farmland outside of Spoleto in Umbria. His father had been blacklisted by the McCarthy Committee in the late 1940s and had moved his family to Rome. And so my friend had grown up in the American University, American High School in Rome. And after his father died in the late 1960s, 
he had um, he and his girlfriend had bought um, 400 acres of land. His father was one of the people who started the Spoleto Arts Festival with Giancarlo Minotti and Ezra Pound and other patrons of the arts in the 1950s and 60s. So I encountered them, we became good friends, and during the 70s uh, we started raising horses in, in, on their place in Umbria, and all of their friends were about five years, ten years older than me, all on the ultra-left, uh, Autonomy Operaia, La Lotto Continua, and they took me as their personal project to uh, <laughs> this young, young man from Texas, and uh, they, they worked on me for a number of years, had me reading Gramsci, and, um, and I learned Italian, um, and when I came back, I re-enrolled at the University of Texas, and by the late 1970s, I discovered these people in, in Britain, uh, Raymond Williams, Stuart Hall, who were writing uh, and citing repeatedly the work of Antonio Gramsci. And that was how I discovered British cultural studies, and sort of through my familiarity with Gramsci and uh, in fact I remember one of my teachers Archie Green who was a famous left-wing folklorist uh, labor organizer in San Francisco and uh, had become a folklore professor at the University of Texas um, where I did a lot of my sort of minor work in, oh, as a graduate. Thank you very much sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Green tea? Green tea, yep. You have the green tea. And the glass of ice is... Just uh, ice, no water. Exactly. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Thanks. Uh, Archie Green had um, suggested that uh, I translate Gramsci's writing on popular culture and folklore and as a kind of testament to my lifelong lack of business acumen uh, I said uh, who in the world would want to read a translation of Gramsci on popular culture or folklore uh, and this was a couple of years before there became this cottage industries of Gramsci translations, right? Uh, but that was my connection to British cultural studies. And as a grad student, I had a, a very um, quirky curriculum in those years called an independent study, which meant that it developed between three different departments. It was started out in complete comparative literature because in those years comparative literature was the conduit for critical theories that were coming from Europe to universities in the United States but I also was interested in film and television and so I started to take courses in what was called radio television and film and my professor was Tom Schatz and he and, but it was actually Archie Green that pointed me to a, a young professor in the English department who had been hired by another folklorist, Roger Abrams, and his name was Horace Newcomb. And I was in Horace Newcomb's very first graduate seminar with two other people, 
that Horace taught on television. Uh, and then the third area of study was folklore or cultural anthropology, uh, which was very vibrant at the University of Texas in those years. Amerigo Paredes was one of my professors, and Richard, um, uh, Roger Abrams, Richard Bauman, Archie Green, um, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet. Uh, so there was this sort of triangulation of critical theory, media studies, and cultural anthropology, and it wasn't uh, until after I had applied for jobs for two or three years that Larry Grossberg at the University of Illinois was the only one who could recognize something um, familiar in that um, rather quirky curriculum of study as a grad student. But Italy is a place you've always gone back to. You've written about many, many other topics. We'll get on to those later. Yeah. But I'd love you to tell us about that book because I think it's a classic and uh, because it really is broader and deeper than the vast majority of national cinema books and the reason I think it's broader and deeper is that it's deeper because you use a lot of archival material which one doesn't always get and it's broader because you seriously look at the, everything from the political economy of the industry itself through to the politics of Italy at the time and you do it in a transnational way. It's not only about Italy, it's also about Italy and the United States, for example. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, about that. That's very kind of you to, um, to put it that way, Toby. And um, it was um, definitely a, um, a product of its time and an intervention that I wanted to make in part I'll start out with the second and thinking about it as an intervention because um, as I think everyone still recognizes the 19 late 1970s early 80s was a time in which um, a kind of so-called critical study of cinema of film in particular um, was developing and through a highly formalist kind of analysis of film text and particularly its relation to psychoanalytic uh, criticism, uh, to ideological criticism that somehow bridged that formalism and psychoanalytic theory or Lacanian theory and that kind of theory was alive in Britain and particularly Ivy League uh, universities in the United States whose humanities and, and literature departments were quote-unquote opening themselves to the study of film. Uh, so my very quirky kind of uh, uh, background in film in part because of my having read Gramsci and cultural anthropology and having taken a, my last year as, an, as a grad student a fantastic course with um, Emil McEnany who was a um, um, uh, often a consultant often to African and Latin American countries who were developing uh, media policy, communication policy and he was very into thinking about media and communication policy as cultural policy. 
and was doing a lot of work and he um, it was like a, a bolt of lightning in some ways sort of uh, reminding me about the ways in which um, my interest in media could be thought about politically in relation not only to economies but also to uh, state policies and to sort of international media policy. He was part of some of the early um, discussions around UNESCO and so on. And he had us reading not only uh, Schiller, but also uh, Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall. And uh, this was one of the first professors that I had. This would have been about 1982 that uh, had me thinking seriously about policy. And as Toby knows, I was shared a, a, that class with Eric Michaels, who was also in his last year of graduate studies. So that, I think, really turned me to thinking about the role of Hollywood cinema in Italy in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and the more that I researched um, Italian cinema, the more that I realized that it was really, I mean, it was this classic example of, of the fact that uh, it was a cinema that was almost completely decimated, where 85, 90% of what Italian audiences were watching in the late 1920s and early 30s, sort of as Italian fascism was on the rise, uh, were Hollywood films. And I was just fascinated by that what seemed to me from the historical and geographic distance to be um, a historical contradiction, you know, of, of the, 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 all of these Hollywood films in a country where fascism was so on the rise. And I began to think about the ways in which that, that historical contradiction was a way into thinking about Italian fascism and its attempt to make itself more cosmopolitan, to make Italy as a nation more cosmopolitan at the same time, a kind of profound impulse to, uh, toward nationalism, to protect itself from a kind of quote-unquote foreign Hollywood influence. Uh, and so that was really what the book tried to um, get at and it was I say it was also a product of its time because it was um, working with an archive that is much different than the archives that historians or researchers of cinema or media have available to them online today or even on television today uh, because one had to go to archives in order to watch these films that strangely, maybe not so strangely, in Italy in those years had not been seen in part because of a kind of embarrassment, a kind of uh, um, concern that particularly in the national broadcasting companies the, 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 the specter, so to speak, the shadow 
of what were often described as the dark years, the black years, which was the color of Italian fascism. Um, that, and it was as if it were a ghost in the closet that um, was recognized, but was so those films were typically sort of written off as um, escapism, as fascist, uh, and I just wanted to um, represent their complexity, their contradictions, uh, to, and to think about their relation to fascism, but not sort of reduce them to fascism uh, at the same time. And that was, in some ways, a kind of lesson that I had even, I, maybe ironically, gotten from having read Gramsci. Um, is that, you know, there was a whole civil society, there was a whole sort of production of culture um, that was, and just his writing on hegemony, that, that made its reduction to the state something that was complicated. Um, so anyway, I went to archives in the United States, interestingly at the beginning of the Second World War, the U.S. government confiscated all of the Japanese, German, and Italian films that they could find in the United States. And they shipped them off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, uh, where they remained deteriorating for many years. And uh, I was part of um, a generation that had sort of gotten these the Library of Congress in the United States to make some of these films available and MoMA Museum of Modern Art in New York had a retrospective on those films the Italian films of the 20s and 30s in the late 70s so and I also had to go to some archives in Italy um, which was a very Byzantine bureaucratic process of finding these films and watching them and surreptitiously making um, photographs that I used in my book uh, with a little lens that you could attach to a camera called a duplicate lens in which you could put the reel of film inside the front of the lens and close it up and snap uh, an image that you wanted. By the way, so, if you look at Edward Snowden's archives, you'll see that James has long been an underground <laughs> black ops, psyops figure in the National Security Agency. And, uh, right. the, the great grandfather, the, the American friend <laughs> of, of, of Snowden. Well, thank, thank you, Agent Miller, for... for, for which is, which is my affectionate uh, nickname that I've given to Toby over the years because of his uh, stellar work on uh, spy fiction and in one medium. He's uncritical love Exactly. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I studied Italian politics with, uh, at college with a guy who had to run fleeing from the building a few years later because of plagiarism who will remain unknown, unnamed. But I studied Italian fascism with a guy who was an Irish-Australian priest who had been a priest in the Vatican and had done his PhD there on the Partito Popolare. I hope I'm pronouncing it so that... Pretty good. More or less, you know what I'm talking about. 
and then you know discovered femininity and left the Catholic faith, as it were. But his the question that he tried to get at with that PhD research, and then when he taught us, was why were there no fascists in Italy after Mussolini was hanged? Um, I, I have often thought about writing a book um, on Italian modernity that um, rethinks that post-World War II supposed political rupture uh, that somehow signaled the end of Italian fascism and the beginning of, for a, a few years, after, immediately after the Second World War, um, a left-wing political orientation that was that struck fear in the CIA and the State Department of the United States because they were convinced that Italy was going to go red the way that other European countries were going in the aftermath of World War II, but it became a, a kind of center-right government. And I've often thought that it's, it's important to sort of think about the Italian nation and the nation-state to a certain extent uh, as having developed in the 1920s and 30s under fascism, but that that model, that sort of political and cultural geography of the nation continued despite the collapse of fascism continued for a number of other decades until the 1980s with the emergence of the private television networks and a kind of federalism that developed in uh, where Rome was no longer just the center of the nation as it had become under fascism. Uh, and that there was this sort of fragile alliance of different regions of Italy, the emergence of certain global cities, the competition with the private TV networks in the 1980s and 90s, and that that older sort of model of government, of a national popular culture, in media culture, let's call it even, of radio and TV and cinema that was centered in Rome, began to erode uh, as Berlusconi that was based in Milan and as these other smaller regional broadcasting private companies began to uh, emerge. And I, I think that's an interesting and useful way of thinking about the answer to that question of what happened to Italian fascism, but certainly the right doesn't go away and um, and there are um, more complicated developments of that, like the Northern League in the 1980s and 90s that becomes an anti-immigrant party in Italy uh, and is not overtly fascist and it's sort of its its genealogy isn't that way but it's much more part of that late 20th century uh, sort of fragmentation of Italy where there's this 
the, the federalism that I was mentioning a moment ago, where Rome is no longer the center of state and economic and cultural um, power. Yeah, the gringos really had it right with their federalist models for Italy and Germany, didn't they? Very smart. Now, I just we're, we're halfway through, and I just before we leave Italy as a topic, I, this doesn't follow chronologically, but a few years later you put together, in more ways than one, what I think is called the British Film Institute Companion to Italian Cinema. Now, I know, I know you don't want to talk too much about that, but it is a terrific book. The reason that I don't want to talk about that and the reason that Toby is taking such pleasure in, in asking me about that is not... I, let's put it this way. I was a poor uh, assistant professor who needed um, some money. That was one of the reasons. And it was also out of my friendship to Ed Buscombe, who was working for the British Film Institute in those years, who... Um, asked me if I would assist a Mr. Jeffrey Noel Smith in, uh, in editing that. And I won't go into, you know, what still um, sort of frustrates me about the production and editing of that uh, book with Jeffrey, because I think there, was, there were certain things that happened in uh, producing that book that uh, are, are regrettable, um, but in any case, um, yes, I wrote a lot of that book and the introduction to that book, even though I wound up getting um, an assistance uh, credit for the book, and that's one of the reasons that I'm somewhat frustrated about uh, the book, but it was... Um, you know, it was um, an effort to provide um, a, a short compendium of, of um, sort of a, a, an alternative historiography of, uh, of um, an alternative archive of, of Italian cinema, which I think still was in something important to represent at a time in which... Um, at a time when... At a time when, yeah. at a time, a young man then, uh, has to step forward. <laughs> <laughs> the future of the world is on his shoulders. Is he a true son to Will Smith, or not? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the point is, for what it's worth, until now, and I own the book and have used it quite a bit. I had no idea that you were quote an assistant. I thought, you know. You were coeval, so to speak. Well, I, I, so technically, worth. I was, and in the production, in terms of the division of labor, I was. How I became relegated to uh, on the cover of that book with the the beautiful Sophia Loren on the on the cover of the book, uh, and I'm happy to be included in that company. Um, um, I'll, le I'll leave for another day. It's another uh, story, sure. But anyway, the, the book is terrific. Mm. And just finishing Italy completely, as it were, here's another question for you, and it's about Echo. Uh, when I think about what people like me read that comes from Italy who don't have the capacity... I mean, I can sort of understand bits of written Italian, but not really. What it is that I read in translation is, historically, as it were, obviously Gramsci then Eco, then Negri, then Agamben. 
And it's pretty clear that two of those are, are really in the stratosphere and two are whatever. <laughs> to me, anyway, although they're interesting whatevers. I, why is it that Umberto Eco is now famous all over the world as a novelist? You know, he's and, and he's a real public intellectual in Europe. But when it comes to, say, academia in the critical cultural communication sphere in the English language, it's as though he never existed. Well, that's my take, anyway. Well, I think it is. I mean, that is one of the reasons that I had thought about him as, along with Matelart and, uh, and Hall, because I think that they have either been ignored or canonized in very um, unfortunate kinds of ways that often don't quite represent you know the the context in which their work was an an intervention at that time um i'll answer your question but i don't know whether you want to go back to echo who was a lot of people may not realize it he began as writing um questions for an italian famous italian tv quiz show uh, and um, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and he. I mean, I think even it's it's fascinating to think of his his interest in semiotics and in um, a kind of archive of popular culture in terms of his having written questions for a famous quiz show in the late 1950s and early 60s and in Italy, but. He made a number of important interventions, um, particularly about um, U.S. mass communication research in the 1960s and providing, in some ways, uh, an alternative perspective to both the Frankfurt School's uh, account of um, culture industries, but also of U.S. mass communications rather facile way of thinking about the masses and communication and articulating those two terms together. Um, and so um, you're right that Echo's um, writing has, um, I, think, I think in some ways it was, it's, it's just very European. I think it's too... Um, non-linear in some ways for it to be have gained continue to gain traction in a kind of anglo-saxon um in an anglo-saxon world, world. <laughs> right, exactly <laughs> sorry we're, this is at my pathetic attempt with my light tenor to be in the voiceover market for trailers for hollywood blockbusters in case anybody listening hadn't worked that out already you know there's this new movie we, we need we need out. we need some Thunder rumbling right, in the background. Right. In a world. You know, there's this movie that's just come out by this woman who also directed it, where she wants to be, to be a voiceover artist, but she's you know young and cute and has a height. I think it's called In a World or something. Right? Just fun. I've got to see it. So anyway, yeah. Right. In an Anglo-Saxon world, it's, it is non-linear, and that's and, interesting. And and yeah, and then of course right. the other th um, dimension of Echo's writing his sort of encounter with that Anglo-Saxon world would have been his visits to uh, Britain in the 1970s where um, 
his contributions to writing about audience and uh, to decoding uh, had an enormous uh, influence on British cultural studies at Birmingham where he was lecturing and uh, even Stuart Hall's um, ideas about encoding and decoding. Um, I think people of my generation, Toby's generation, may remember that Echo's writing on decoding, uh, audience decoding, uh, contributed to um, that moment in Stuart Hall's take on media. I wouldn't reduce encoding and decoding Hall's writing on encoding and decoding to Echo's work on decoding because Hall is clearly interested in thinking about, in, in linking that to um, his account of Gramsci's writing on hegemonic formation, and that's the other part of that sort of classic essay by Hall uh, that um, a lot of people remember. But it's the decoding part of it that I think is, is a semiotic influence that is important to think about in relation to Echo in the 19, the work that he was doing in the 70s. But just quickly and last, that yes, he was, he's continued to write. He writes children's books, he writes novels, and he's been a very, continues to be a very vital part of um, sort of the public intellectual scene in Italy, in Europe, writing for some of the major magazines where he has uh, his own columns that he contributes to, just writing on what's happening in the world, right? And, uh, and you know, it's unfortunate, but the U.S. for many years has not had those kinds of figures that have written on popular culture, popular communication. And I take, for instance, Horace Newcomb's efforts for writing a regular... Uh, column for the Baltimore Sun in, I guess it would have been the 19, early 1970s when he taught yep. Yep. at the University of Maryland Baltimore campus and was writing a regular, one of the first regular television criticism uh, columns for a U.S. newspaper. And, but, um, you know, I think that's an interesting kind of parallel and to a certain extent in the United States and um, and I should say that as much as I had been reading Gramsci I'd also been reading the work of Echo and Roland Barthes in the 1970s and well that's the other so, thing I was going to say you know for listeners who haven't gone down these paths reading Barthes mythologies or Echo's I think it's travels in hyperreality Bart's Mythologies comes out in the early 70s. Echo's Travels in Hyperreality. But it was also Apocalyptici Integrati. Apocalyptics and Integrationist was his, uh, one of his first sort of collection of Echo's collection of essays on famous comic book heroes, Steve Canyon, Peanuts, 
uh, Superman, uh, and using semiotics in order to think about popular culture, uh, U.S. popular culture in Italy or from an Italian perspective. And, and in that sense, yes, there's something very similar to Roland Barthes' uh, mytho mythologies. And, and, yeah, and, and they're wonderful books. Now, we've only got about 20 minutes left, and I've dragged you not kicking and screaming into your Italian past, but that's only really a bit of what you do. Um, you're also, as am I, in inverted commas, an Americanist. You're a theorist. You're interested in a bunch of other questions, and you ended up, bizarrely, in a thing you'd probably never really thought of before, namely speech communication. So there you are, armed with your archival, theoretical, Gramscian, counter-hegemonic account of Italian fascism and cinema, walking to a place where people are measuring other people's ear holes, uh, amongst other things. That's a, a very insightful way to put it. Um, so what was that like? You arrived so at, the I, 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 at the University of Illinois, and, but I arrived at the University of Illinois at a, at a moment in which particularly my new colleague and academic and intellectual playmate, Larry Grossberg, had, uh, was sort of on the ascent, particularly at the University of Illinois, where he had studied in the 1970s and then returned there as a young professor. And during the 80s, uh, he was, because of his brief... Um, experience as a student at the, at Birmingham at the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies, maybe one of the only people from the United States who had studied there uh, with Stuart Hall, with whom he became a lifelong friend, and Richard Hoggart, and a generation of uh, grad students, David Morley, Charlotte Brunsden, Angie McRobbie, John Clark, uh, Dick Hebdige, Ian Chambers, Lydia Curti, uh, to name a few, uh, who were there then. And Larry uh, began to invite many of them, including Stuart, uh, to the United States, and particularly to the University of Illinois. And, um, and I intersected really with that sort of moment in which uh, Larry was in a department of speech communication, but at a moment in which speech communication uh, was at that university was uh, very interdisciplinary. And Larry and I became um, sort of a center in that department on campus for doing cultural studies. I should mention that James Carey was in the, my current home at the University of Illinois, the Institute of Communications Research. But Larry and I uh, attracted a number of really, really bright graduate students. We're very lucky to have worked with some who have now gone on to become quite well-known around the world. Um, and we became too successful in some ways, and our department uh, basically uh, attempted to um, do everything it could to uh, minimize. I'm just saying someone's name, sotto voce. 
to annoy James. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and basically we lost, and Larry went in 1994 to North Carolina, and, um, and that department became profoundly oriented toward social, scientific, and behavioralist kinds of models of communication studies, and it wasn't until about six years ago that I was able to escape that department and go to the Institute of Communications Research, where I'm now director of grad studies. But, but you know, this is a problem that um, has beset um, communication studies in the United States, and it's not a recent one. I've often thought of the Institute of Communications Research as a um, a kind of anomaly in the United States that in that James Carey had a lot to do with uh, shaping in the sense that he um, not only was interested in introducing what he called a cultural or ritual approach to communication, but he saw that as in many respects uh, a counterpoint to the dominance of the sciences in communication studies in the United States. Uh, that a cultural approach was for him uh, historicizing that scientific model, to historicize science, the truth and the positivism of science. And that's in some ways how I sort of have connected my interest in Foucault with the work of James Carey, which may seem very odd, but to the extent that both of them were historians who were in many ways interested in historicizing the truth, the facts, the projects of science. Uh, but Carey in the United States with respect to the scientific aspirations of communication studies, which never happened in Britain and to the same extent. So British cultural studies never had, its engagement was with Gramsci and not with uh, a, a sort of a, a grappling with uh, the social and behavioral sciences. And what I find uh, really important about James Carey's work is the fact that he uh, was attempting to think about a cultural study in communication uh, research as something that was necessary because of the dominance of scientific work in communication studies in the United States. And I wonder if I could throw something in there that is sometimes lost in discussions of Jim, even though I of course didn't know him nearly as well as you did, but that came out a lot in my conversations with him and in much of his work. He was also an economic historian. So whilst he didn't line up with Herb Schiller and Thomas Gubak and the political economy Marxism guys, no matter how much he was a Durkheimian ritual person, he was also, why is that cable there? and where does it come from and who laid it and what work does it do and how far has it gone across the country, right? He always wanted, to, he had a materialist approach without it being a Marxist class-based approach, I think it's fair to say. So that was what was always interesting to me about his work. It had this notion of, you know, I'm a Catholic and I'm an American and how is this achieved, which is interesting, but have this other thing which is, why is that wire there? That's right, uh, and he, had been at the Institute of Communications Research when, in the 60s, when it was training some of the most well-known 
Marxist critical political economist of communication in the United States. Dallas Smythe, Herb Schiller, um, even Gerbner to a certain extent who was there for a while, and then Tom Gubak who became uh, a professor there. So he was working alongside some of those folks um, and there's nothing about his writing in the 1970s about a what he called a cultural approach to communication or a ritual approach to communication that was sort of casting that approach in opposition to political economic questions. Um, it was more in opposition to the sciences, uh, to the, that as the sort of funding stream for uh, communication research in the middle uh, part of the 20th century uh, and by the 1970s, and still for that matter, I mean. Um, so, and we can't ever see critical Marxist political economic analysis is ever becoming any kind of dominant uh, approach in <laughs> communication studies in the United States. There, there is that sort of opposition that develops strangely in the United States between a critical political economic analysis of communication and cultural studies, but then of course, Jim becomes one of those voices by in that famous uh, issue in the mid-1990s when Larry Grossberg and Jim Carrey um, a debate um, in print with Nicholas Garnham and Graham Murdoch uh, about quote-unquote political economy versus cultural studies. And Larry's uh, title of his... Uh, intervention is critical political economic analysis versus cultural studies. Is anybody else bored with this argument? And, and this is, uh, is this critical studies in mass communication? Exactly. 1995, I think, was the, yeah. the, the year of that. But, ju but just your, the answer to your yeah. question is that, yes, I think Jim's essay on the history of telegraphy in the United States is, is a brilliant uh, essay uh, that, as you point out, isn't um, is his his theoretical compass is not Marx or a Marxist political economy, but it is very much interested in how um, a history of that media or communication technology, the telegraph, uh, had everything to do with the beginnings of uh, trading. Um, uh, the trade markets and, um, you know, um, commodities markets, futures markets in the United States. And, uh, and in that sense, it's a very interesting sort of history of the relation of, uh, of Protestantism, of religion, uh, manifest destiny with technologies and um, an, a kind of economic... Uh, networks of circulation that developed in the 19th century in the United States, trying to bring all of those uh, sort of developments together into one history. So yeah. um, Now, what I've managed to do is do what you do yourself, yeah. which is get you to perform not only the function, speaking a bit about your own work, but in fact curating the program, 
so that it's about lots of other people's work. This is part of your generosity as a pedagogue and a leader in the field. So I'm going to have to insist that we do a second of these where we only talk about your work. Well, sorry, I'm going to have to request that we do a second of these where we only talk about your work. I'll say what you say to me all the time, Toby, which is, I just so love taking orders. Right? <laughs> well, I think because of what your daddy did, it's, those words don't come so easily to you as they do to me. You know, his dad was like a general, right? And, in, the, and, in the Air Force. And my dad was a professor, so I can say I love to obey with a big shit-eating pie grin on my face, whereas for you, you know, it probably has... A certain other connotation. That's why I dropped out of school when I was 19 and followed a, a fashion model to Italy, you know. The Cultural Studies podcast is an Oedipal free space. <laughs> there are no blind men charging around this zone, I can tell you. So, but, but to finish off just for now, I wonder if you could tell us where you stand, and then we'll find, we're going to find a time to talk more about your non-Italian work, as it were. But tell us quickly where you stand in this opposition, political economy, cultural studies, because it sounds to me as though, and this is my view of your work, you just reject the opposition. I do reject the opposition, but I also, um, because I... Um, in some ways have both Jim Carrey and Larry Grossberg to um, blame or to thank for um, having um, uh, complicated for me during the late 1980s and 90s uh, a kind of cultural studies that understood its project as primarily about the study of representations through semiotics and structuralism. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's certainly limits to that. And so a whole way of, particularly in the United States, of understanding cultural studies as about the construction of meanings, the construction of identities, the construction of um, the formation of ideologies, um, ideology as culture. Um, I, I very quickly at Illinois began to think about the limits of that. I think I was already recognizing the limits of that in this book on uh, Italian cinema during the fascist period, which I sometimes think about as I'm not immodestly as, other than Richard Dyer's work, as one of the only efforts of doing cultural studies about cinema, uh, because in those years, uh, Richard Dyer's book on stars, I think, was certainly a book that sort of thought about the importance of questions that were being asked by British cultural studies with respect to, to cinema. But, um, just quickly, because I know we're almost out of time, that um, more recently um, I've and begun to think that there are important ways of rethinking what is counted as critical, maybe Marxist political economic analysis of media uh, in the 21st century. There's nothing wrong with that kind of analysis. I found it very helpful. I teach it in my classes, and by that kind of work I mean the work that focuses on the big institutions 
um, that own um, various kinds of media, whether they're commercial institutions or whether they're state institutions, that a quote-unquote political economic analysis of media has thought about mostly those state and commercial institutions for producing, distributing, marketing, and doing audience research about media. Um, and those are the kinds of questions that have been asked, and I think particularly with respect to a kind of the formalism of critical studies of media or so-called cultural studies that goes down that path. That's an important uh, set of questions to not lose sight of. But I also think, and this is where, and we can save this maybe if you want for another interview, but my encounters with Foucault, that and I read Foucault is really, particularly in his lecture on governmentality, as trying to historicize something called political economy and political economic explanations of power. And it's in part through Foucault that I'm interested in a kind of rethinking of what economies are, of what political economy is, and of that analysis and coming up with an alternative, which I think in some ways he does. I don't know too many people that read him quite that, Foucault, quite that way. But I, so Foucault is one way in which I've come to sort of rethink political economic analysis of media and communication, but also through studies of space, of, of Henri Lefebvre's work on the production of space, which I think also offers an alternative way of thinking about both semiotic but also political economic analysis of media and communication, although Lefebvre has very little to say about media and communication. Uh, and, and finally, just that in the 21st century, I think the, the fact that we have moved away from a kind of production and distribution and branding of media that is located only in those corporations or state institutions, but now occurs through all sorts of amateur, semi-professional uh, actors and agents that are not working outside of those commercial and state institutions, but that are, can't, their, their work, their labor, their productivity can't be reduced to that either. And I think it's high time for a critical political economic analysis of media to grapple seriously with that, with those kind of new regimes of labor. Uh, and I think Toby's um, idea of an international division of labor uh, is part of that. But I think since that book uh, in the early 21st century, uh, there have been a, a fairly rapid kind of ramping up of, of you know, semi-professional, amateur kinds of labor, of self-production, self-distribution, self-branding, branding oneself, right? That Alison Hearn talks about that. 
that I think is really sort of where the questions are right now. Well, James, hey, thank you very much. It's always great to talk to you. I always learn something, and you always say nice things about me, so that's the best part. It's easy to do, Toby. <laughs> but more seriously, I'm going to, as the actress said to the bishop, I'm going to tie you down to another date very soon. It was great. It was fantastic to have this tour of your work. I have to say to those listening, there are so many other books and articles and topics we've barely touched on, that James has contributed to, but be back, same bat time, same bat station. Was that...